Barnabas, who is actually still in Jerusalem, he hears about this, basically this, this revival that's taking place where these Jews and Gentiles are getting together and doing their thing, and they were doing it so effectively that the outside the church, the city of Antioch, was looking in and saying, okay, this is different. Something new is happening. So Barnabas comes from, from Jerusalem. He's amazed. He goes to Tarsus to get Paul. Paul comes in. He's amazed, and we know they're, they're both amazed because they stayed there for a year and taught these people. So they were ministering to each other so effectively and and, and just some wonderful things were, were happening that it caused the people of the city to, to say, wait a second, we don't recognize this. This is something new. In Acts, in Acts 11.26, Luke writes, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Jesus didn't name this ragtag group of people. Paul didn't name this. The church didn't name themselves. It was the city. It was the society that actually named, gave them the name of, of Christians. Which is pretty amazing. And we're going to talk more about that here in a little bit. So all that to say, a church should be something that looks different to the people, to outside the people. For in the world, the church should look very different. So in our our, uh, our passage today, we're going to see three main things that, that, Paul, that Paul says about how this Christian church should be. Number one is, they, he talks about the realities of this Christian church. Number two, he talks about the attitudes and the actions of the Christian church. And last, he talks about the purpose of the Christian church. So go to, go to verse 9 with me, if you would. I'll just read uh, verse 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and is in all. So there, there, there are two, two realities that Paul, I think, is pointing out here. The, the first one is uh, these new Christians have been made new and are being made newer being made more new. They're going to be newest. I don't know. Something like that. They're, they're new and they're going to be made more and more new. We'll just leave it with that. Um, eight times in this small little letter, Paul uses changing language, transforming language. In, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, God delivered them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. Joe talked about the kingdom of, of darkness today being full of darkness. I love that. In chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, he said, You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil. Then Christ reconciled them by his death on the cross. Chapter 2, verse 10, you've been filled. The implication is they've been filled completely. There's no room for anything else. Any darkness that was in them has now been pushed out by what Christ has filled them with. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, you have put off the body of flesh through spiritual circumcision. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, raised with Christ through faith. Verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God made you alive. Two more, chapter 3, uh, verse 3, you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ. And lastly, right here in uh, verses 9 and 10, you have put off the old self and have put on the new self. So Paul is saying that they are completely different. They are <coughs> brand new. They have a new baseline. They have a brand new normal. And in verse 9, when he, when he talks about putting off says, uh, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Uh, with that, you can envision in your own closet, you can think about your, your own closets, um, think about all those clothes that are kind of toward the far left side that you never wear, okay? Did anyone relate to that? Okay. Um, for, for 
I won't say us. I'll say I'll say me. For for me, there's like there's like six inches of like shirts that I wear and like two feet of things that uh, they they might not be mine. I don't know. I haven't looked at it in a long time, right? And we we all we all have this. Would so anybody confess to you have like a 50-50 split? Like you've got like 50% of your clothes you don't wear, 50 that you do. Anybody gonna confess? <laughs> All right, all of you go, oh, hey, God, we got one. Okay, excellent. I was, I was going to direct all of you to the beginning of verse 9, but I won't uh, now. Um, says don't lie to one another if you're wondering. Uh, but, uh, but we all have those, those old, old clothes. They're, they're the things we don't wear, they're, they're not in style anymore. They may have stains on them. They may have you know, holes in them and, and not the kind of holes that you, know, you buy a pair of jeans hoping that there's like specific holes. You guys ever done that? The holes that make us think and look like, oh, we don't really care what we're wearing. When, when we like select the ones, I don't like those holes, I like these holes. That's what we do. But those, those are this is kind of what Paul is talking about, these old, worn-out clothes. And, and he relates this to a person's worn-out, sinful life. You know, and some of us have some, some pretty gnarly stories of our past life before Christ pulled us from darkness into his light. He may have you know, pulled you from a place that was so dark that you couldn't see the stains on your shirt, that you couldn't see, you didn't, even, you didn't even recognize that there was sin in you. But he grabs a hold of you and in his mercy and grace pulls you to a place where not only do you see the stains, but you see the sins and you are repentant of your sins and you want nothing to do with those sins anymore. Is that is that someone's story? Yeah, right. story? Yeah, right. I know, I just started talking about that before. Yeah, I, I, I know that that's, that's the case. And, and I, I think it would be, it'd be a real shame if we were to think, you know, a lot of people in this room have more than likely, they were, we got saved at a very young age, six, seven, eight years old, okay? So when, I, when we read a, a verse like, like uh, 113, where God has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, we may tend to think, well, I was so young, I didn't really have that darkness in me. But that's not what the Bible says about the state of the sinner, Right? David writes in Psalm 51, he says, I was sinful from where? The womb. I was born sinful from the moment I came out. And in the Bible, this is what the, what the Bible says. Romans, Romans 8 says that uh, the mind, is, mind that is set on the flesh is unable to please God, no matter how old you were when Christ grabbed you, grabbed a hold of you and brought you into his kingdom. You were sinful, you were hostile, your heart was darkened. You wanted nothing to do with God. And it would be such a bummer, such a bad thing if, if we were saved at a very young age and we thought, oh, God really didn't have to go that far to grab me. I was, I was so cute. I've got pictures to prove it. Right? It's not true. If you've been pulled out of, of the darkness, I, I love, I wish I would have been here uh, last Sunday because we had a couple baptisms. Richard got baptized, uh, and then the, the small badger child. What's his name? Oliver. Oliver. There he is, he's right back there. I love, isn't that an awesome picture where here's, you know, someone, how old are you, Oliver? He's nine. A nine-year-old, nine Richard, I, I won't ask you, it's okay. Um, we have a, a nine-year-old and someone older, just as sinful, just as alienated from God before God grabbed the hold of him. There is no difference between these two from a sin perspective in God's eyes. They were sinners who were worthy and, well, they were worthy of God's wrath. They were worthy of eternal death, but God in his grace reached down and grabbed both of them, just at different times. This is every, all, this, all, all of our stories. 
If you're a Christian, you were once old, you were once alienated, you were once darkened, but now you've put off that old self. And he says, you have put on the new self. With, uh, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And these are the new clothes. We can also relate to this. Everyone loves wearing new clothes. We feel more confident. We feel cooler. We're trendy. Anyone brave enough to say I'm wearing something new right now and I feel good? <laughs> no. <laughs> Excellent. So Oliver's wearing a new thing as well. That's great. Yeah. But this is, this is uh, just the way, just the way we, we are. Um, and so he, he says, you put on this, this new self, and whenever you're wearing something new, the last thing you're going to go do, the last thing you want to go do when you're wearing something new, and you feel good, you're confident, the last thing you're going to do is go put on something old. That doesn't fit right. It's got stains that you haven't worn in a long time. You're just not going to do that. And this is what Paul is, is saying, and, and he, he confirms this and says this multiple times in, in Colossians. In, uh, Colossians 1, 5, he says, we have a hope laid up in heaven. He's talking about those who put on a new self. You have a hope laid up in heaven. Uh, verse 12, you've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. 13 and 14, you've been transformed to the kingdom of Jesus and have been redeemed and forgiven. 2, 14, their record of debt has been canceled. And 3, 12, they have been chosen, are holy, and are loved by God. This is the new self. Why in the world would you go back to an old self? Why would you go back to an old one that is in darkness, that is headed right towards death, far from God, we wouldn't do it. And Paul doesn't even stop there. Um, at, at the end of, of verse, I guess in, in verse 10, look at verse 10 with me. Uh, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This renewal of the new self is the complete spiritual restoration of the Christian. And this takes place through life, and this is known as the doctrine of what? Sanctification. Sanctification. This idea that we are slowly being made holy. The Westminster Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, uh, if you uh, are familiar with that, if you're not, you can Google it. Uh, it's, it says this uh, about, about sanctification, and I think this is an, an excellent summation. It says, sanctification, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man, after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Amen. That is a, a beautiful description of that. Amen. So Paul writes that the Christians are becoming more and more like Christ. There's no ifs there. There's no buts there. There's no ands there. He says this is what's happening. You put on the new self and you are being renewed in the image of your creator. So let, let me ask you, um, have you noticed this in your life? Have you noticed, no matter how long you've been, you've been a, a Christian, no matter when God pulled you from that darkness, have you noticed times in your life where, have you no, just noticed in you that you are a different person? You are a changed person, that there were once sins that you used to revel in that now just, you know, you, you're disgusted by. Can you see a change? You know, and, and this is this is something that is slow, and, and oftentimes the the evidence of that is a little more than, than others. And, and when it comes right down down to it, um, it's not going to happen in this in this world. Um, you know, as a, as an example, I, I have this little thing. Um, I wear it every day. I work outside a lot. So if this watch was, you know, my sin, 
and I, and I take it off. I don't know if you can see that or not. Do you see a tan line? You know, there's, there's people laughing as if, well, yes, it's lightning. Um, but no, this is, this is the idea. We've taken off this, we put off the old self, but yet there's still some evidence. There's still some evidence of something, something was there. That sin is still there, and I think that's just kind of an idea of, I would put it back on, but it takes up 20 minutes, so I won't. Um, but this is, this is our, our story. This is our, our plight as, as humans. We are moving in a direction. God is moving us in a direction by his grace more and more, turning us more and more into the image of his, his son. And uh, go to 1 Thessalonians 5 real quick. Just, it should be just the next couple pages over from Colossians. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be in uh, 23 and 24. We went through uh, Colossians just, I don't know, six months ago or so. In verse 23, uh, 523, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. One day you will be completely sanctified. The process will be complete. You will be made into the image of your creator, Jesus Christ. And at that time, we'll be in the presence of God. It's not going to happen at this, uh, you know, when we're above the ground here. But this is what Paul wants this young church to know. that They are not the same. They've been made new and are being made even more new. That's their new reality. The second reality is that in the Christian church, it is not about them. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any one person. Look at verse 11. Uh, in Colossians 3. Ooh, still this one. Colossians 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. You've put on the new self, uh, or as Paul writes in Galatians, he says you've put on Christ. Those who've put on Christ, uh, so many things that typically would have divided, now don't divide. So he, he just lists a couple things. He says Greek or Jew. This is a race thing. This is a cultural thing. Don't matter anymore for those who put on Christ. Circumcised or uncircumcised. These are past religious experiences. They don't matter anymore for those who put on Christ. Barbarian. This is someone in, in, uh, in Paul's day who, who didn't speak Greek, who wasn't very educated, known as a, as a barbarian. Um, education, intelligence doesn't matter. In the kingdom of God, uh, Scythian. I love this. This is, this is a group of people that were known to be the wildest and craziest of the barbarians. All right, so this is like the Raider fans, uh, the, the Yankee fans, uh, maybe, maybe not the Yankees, but, but definitely the Raider fans, right? Uh, and then slave or free. Again, these are these are social things that just absolutely do not matter anymore in the kingdom of God. Race doesn't matter. Past religious experience or lack thereof don't matter. Education doesn't matter. Intelligence doesn't matter. I'm very thankful for that. Your social standing doesn't matter. And why is it? Look at the verse 11 again. No Greek, no Jew, certainly those who are barbarians, the enslaved, free, but Christ is all. It is all about Jesus. Nothing matters but Jesus. We are not here because of, of how pleasant all of us are and we just love each other so much. We may love each other. That's not why we are are here. We're not 
a social club where we just get together and everything we do is just for our own pleasure. We're not the YMCA where people come to it and it's all about self-improvement. You know, we're not uh, I don't know, bingo clubs. Those are still bingo clubs. Maybe there should be. Just talk about that. Um, we're not the bingo clubs where people just come and trying to get something from from each other. That's that's not that's not who we are. It's not about us. Church is not about us. Faith is not about us. It's all about Christ. And it's when a church has that kind of attitude that it becomes really countercultural. Because if it's about Christ, and we know when we're being turned in to Christ, are we going to act to each other and behave and treat each other like our old self? We may. But we shouldn't. I love what Paul writes. Go to uh, chapter 1. Talking about how everything is about is about Christ, um, and he, I don't think anybody could have said it any better. Uh, chapter one, verse fifteen. I want to read the, those five verses. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The absolute supremacy, the absolute preeminence of Christ. And this is true for people who have put on a new self, who are dearly loved by God. This is our new reality. Amen. I'm so happy that it's not about us. Man, what if it was? We probably wouldn't be here. We definitely wouldn't be happy about it. I hope you're happy about it. Okay. So the first thing that Paul talks about is the realities of the Christian church. Number two, uh, the attitudes and actions of this new Christian church. And here's where we get really practical. Uh, last week, uh, Ryan mentioned... Uh, in typical uh, Paul fashion, there is a lot of really powerful, weighty indicatives, or just these realities, just how it is, things that God has done, the new, what the new person is, that fuel all the imperatives, that fuel these things that we are called to do. So go to, uh, look at verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He writes that because they have been chosen, because they are dearly loved, because uh, they, they, are, they are holy, that they're the way they must live because of that. There's no excuses. Paul doesn't do that when, when he writes. He doesn't say, well, you, you know, you know, I worked in Antioch, so why don't you guys give it a try? Don't say that. He says, no, this is this is who you are, and this is what people who are like you do. They do these particular things. Additionally, Paul said that Christ is all and he is in all. At the at the ending of, of verse 11, the implication is that every single Christian is a representative of Christ, or a little Christ, as, as Martin Luther puts it. That way, uh, that is a, it implies that everything that we do kind of says Christ. Kind of does. Christ would subscribe to this. So he starts by telling them that they need to have compassion. You know, compassion is 
is having you know, an emotional, a caring relationship with somebody else. It's not uh, like you know, we're here and someone says that they have some kind of issue and you pat them on the back and say you'll pray for them and then, then you don't uh, and then you come back next week and you forget about that. I've done that. I've done that. I don't know how many times I've said, I'll pray for you. I don't think about them until next Sunday, you know, to my, to my shame. Um, this is hurting with those who are hurting and weeping with those who are weeping. He goes, uh, he says, kindness. To put on kindness is being ready to do good for others even when we think that they don't deserve it. Even if they haven't treated us in the same way. We're still kind. We're still ready to jump at the chance to help them. Humility. Humility is a, a posture or attitude of, of servanthood, of lowliness, of being quick to put everyone's interests, other people's interests, above our own. Meekness. Uh, in, in the Greek, it means gentle strength. Uh, one of the, I, I, the, the image I get of this is think of like a, a, wild, a wild horse, a wild horse that has been captured and, and brought in and it's being, being trained and tamed to where there's still power, there's still strength, there's still speed, there's agility, and there's still a wild spirit, but now that it's been repurposed and, and worked, even, even a child you know, can, can ride this thing. Nothing's been lost, just some, some different uses and different purposes and some, some training has been gained. This is, this is meekness. Lastly, patience. Patience is, is long-suffering, even at times of being frustrated and, and hurt by fellow Christians. There's an understanding now listen, this is who we are. We're not completely sanctified yet. We're still in process, and these things are going to happen, so we're patient with each other. And if we think, we can think about the picture that Paul is, is painting, what would it what would be, be like if we treated each other this way, and every church who believes in Jesus as, as the Messiah um, treated each other in that way? It would absolutely be revolutionary if we felt compassion for each other, if we actually prayed for each other when we said we would, if we put each other above ourselves, if we were patient with each other, no matter what that person said on Facebook, no matter how they performed at the church volleyball game, no matter how hard I pushed Andy when he was going for the last donut, right? I just, as if we, we treated each other, he doesn't need to eat donuts anyways. Um, uh, if we treat each other like this, that would be a church where this, or a city would go, there you go. We don't have a term for them. They're not acting like we thought that they would. So we can think about that just personally for, for a, a second. Um, is, it, is it difficult for you to empathize with somebody else? When, when you hear of an issue that one of your brothers and sisters has, um, that they're, they're looking to you for support, or maybe advice, or looking for you for something, um, is it difficult for you to, to help them? Does your mind go quickly to, well, something happening because they did this, this, and that? So what can happen if they breach it? Yeah. Is that, is that where, your, where your brain goes? You know, instead of being, being patient and being gentle, do you tend to be harsh and do you kind of revel in this idea that, that you're just really blunt with people? Do you tend to be selfish? Is, is putting others... Um, above yourself, incredibly difficult, and when the situation is not about you, are you disinterested, and do you kind of exit what's going on? You know, the reality is that this is really, really hard. Um, we're going to fail this. 
um, at, at loving each other in this way, and that is why I'm very thankful for verse 13. Go there with me if you would. It says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So I'm supposed to forgive like Christ forgives. You know, and I, I, in thinking about this, I think there's, there's two main ways where, where we don't forgive, at least I don't forgive. Um, I won't put my weaknesses on, on, on you, maybe you're similar. Um, but there might be two main reasons why or how we forgive differently than, than Christ. Uh, if, if someone does something against me that I feel like I deserve an apology for, what do we typically wait for before that forgiveness is given? Apology. Okay? Anyone else can say, yeah, that's, that's me? It's just you and me, too. Everyone, everyone else has got it. <laughs> no, we wait for an apology. And in essence, what we're, what we're doing is, is we want them to come to us, and we want them to know that what they did was wrong. And we want them to know that we know that they know that what they did was wrong. And we want to see them humble themselves underneath our greatness. In essence, isn't that like we are saying, I want them to be humiliated in front of me? It's kind of what it is. And that's evil. That's prideful. That's arrogant. That is ignorant. And that's absolutely the antithesis of who Christ is, what he did, and especially how he forgives. He doesn't wait for us to come groveling at his feet and say, God, please forgive me. He says, I forgave you already. Remember that thing that's in every church that's shaped like this, made of wood? I died on that to forgive all of your sins. We don't have to come and ask. Now, we're commanded to repent, and that's, uh, that's different than forgiveness, and, and we can talk about that on, on a different, different day, but we don't have to crawl to God and beg for him to pay our debt and forgive us because it's been done. Number one, we typically wait for an apology. Number two, uh, we may forgive, but as soon as we need to, and we're in an argument, and our back is to the wall, what's the first thing we do? We bring that right back up. Right? Oh man, I've done that so many times. Right there. No comment. Wise. <laughs> Beautiful and wise. Uh, no, that typically that's 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 what what we do when when you know our pride warning lights are going off when we're in an argument and we just say oh yeah well you remember when you did that thing at that place at that time and and that was terrible. Where's the forgiveness? The forgiveness isn't there, and that's not how Jesus forgives. That's just it's not how how he does it. Psalm one hundred three says that God removes our sin as far as from the. East is from the West. Romans 8 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the, the width and breadth of the forgiveness of, of Jesus. He's forgiven them all, and if you are in him, you put on the new self, he fills you with your spirit, you are chosen, you are loved, you are holy. He doesn't remember your sin anymore. This is what it looks like. You forgive each other. You can make it, you forgive your spouse, forgive your kids, forgive a past close friend. That's what forgiveness looks like. And that's how we're commanded to do it. So in summary of these, just this, this last, last couple of verses, he says we're to be compassionate towards one another. Where the members put others above themselves. And in spite of failings, where there, in spite of failings, there is patience. 
And in the midst of fault and hurt feelings, there's a Christ-like forgiveness. So if, if I were to, to describe a group of people like that to you, and I told you those things, they're compassionate, they're merciful, they, they, they forgive each other, they bear with one another, how would you just really briefly say that they feel towards what one another? How, how would you describe their actions towards what one another? Christian, hopefully, yeah? They love each other. They love each other, okay? They love each other. Go to verse uh, 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The implication is that since they put on all these things, beginning of verse 12, he says, put on therefore compassion, meekness, humility, long-suffering, all these things, bearing with one another, put on forgiveness, and he says, and put on love, like a, a belt. I, I envision it like a belt, that belt that just binds everything together and brings it all together. It, it com- completes the, the ensemble, or I feel like I lost the man right by saying that word. Uh, it, it, it completes the uniform, okay? It completes uh, all, these, all these different things that we are uh, commanded to put on. Love is what will differentiate Christians from the world. Yeah, and, we, and we know this. Jesus said it uh, himself, and we all, all know this verse, so I'm going to read it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He didn't say they'll know you are my, my disciples by how many miracles you do. You, they'll know you're my disciples um, uh, based on how many people you preach the gospel to or how big your community of, of faith is and how quickly it grows. It doesn't even say they'll know how that you are my disciples by how much you love people outside the church. He says they'll know you're my disciples by how well you love each other. Paul then transitions from the relational attitudes and actions uh, that, that the group of new Christians ought to do to spiritual attitudes and actions. Go to verse 15. Just two more verses here. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. For Paul too, for Paul, the, the love of, of Christ uh, should characterize the, the, the public life, the, the public characteristics, uh, corporate actions of the church, and the peace of Christ should characterize the inward life. People should see how much we love each other. Now there's this peace of Christ that should rule in our hearts. When you think about the gospel, we talk about it a lot here at New City, and I love that. Um, when you think about everything that Christ has done for you and your new reality, what are some, what are some things that just bring you Peace. I just bring you comfort. What are some things that you continually lean on? And go. Anything? I can stand here a long time. Worship. Worship? Okay. God's a God that loves to be loves to be worshipped and given us the, the gift of worship. What else? The gospel is the same. Absolutely. Are you, are, you, are you happy that, that God has mercy reached down and grabbed hold of you and gave you salvation? Of course you are. And we're happy that that salvation isn't contingent upon anything we do in this life, but that he will continue that all the way until we meet him face to face. 
and that that eternal destiny is absolutely secure. And we can go through this life knowing that we may sin and we may stray, but God in his faithfulness will always keep a hold of us and keep us going in the correct direction and get us to the place where he wants us to be. These are wonderful truths. Basically, it's all the indicatives that Paul writes about in, in, his, in, his, in, in Colossians and in the rest of his, his letters. So when he says the peace of Christ, that's what he's talking about. All these, all these blessings, all, all, these, all these new realities for the Christian. And then, then he says, let the peace of Christ rule. Rule. That, that word in the Greek actually means to umpire. Umpire. It's like, it's like a, a spiritual referee. And what do referees do? They, they keep people in bounds. They keep uh, the game moving in the right, right direction. Keep everybody kind of playing and, and doing things in the, in the same way. So he says, let the peace of Christ rule. He says, in your hearts. And in Jewish thought, a person's heart was, was the, the seat of volition. Basically, everything that a person does, all the actions come from a person's heart. So in summary, in that, that one verse, he's basically saying, Paul wants these new Christians to let the reality of what Christ has done for them with all its benefits and all its blessings keep their desires and their will in bounds. Isn't that wonderful? Us as a, as a community of faith, if we have the peace of Christ that is keeping us in bounds, there is nothing that should divide. There is nothing that should, should tear us apart. Nothing should be fearful. There should be no fear in this room. But like Brian mentioned uh, last week, our, our spiritual eyes, they tend to, tend to close. So how can we as a community of believers help each other keep our eyes open and our minds set on things above, like we read in Colossians 3, 1? How can we keep our minds set on things above and keep our, our hearts being ruled by the peace of Christ? Go to verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Every week we start our, our service with singing. And you know, in, in doing that, we are, we are speaking directly, directly to God, right? We're singing, great are you, Lord. You know, we're singing songs like that to speak directly to God about how wonderful he is, how loving he is, how powerful and mighty he is. And, and in essence, this is, this is literally, like I think, the most... Um, the most obvious way that we give glory to God. We tell him how glorious he is. He, we tell him how amazing and how much we love him and all these wonderful things. And then, so there's a very clear vertical relationship that's going on, a vertical interaction, us to God. But there's also a horizontal thing that's, that's taking place when we, when we sing together, when we lift our hands, when we clap our hands, when we, when we sway. I was going to say dance, but we don't do that. We're not at a, at, a, at a vineyard church anymore. Uh, I was a part of a vineyard. There's lots of dancing. Uh, when we do these things, we remind each other about the characteristics of our God. And it should be so encouraging when we are together and we see a person across the room or sitting next to us or whatever, we see somebody raising their hands, giving glory to God, and when we know that that person is going through a tough time in their life, when we know that there are job issues, we know that there are marital issues, sin issues, physical 
illnesses going on, infertility, all these things that are just heartbreaking. When we see someone who we know are going through those things, and we see that person raising their hands, singing at the top of their lungs to God about God's goodness, about God's love, about his mercy, man, that should encourage us to no end. Is there anything that is more, that is more clear that, that should remind us, oh, they're going through it, and I'm not, and yet my mind is over here. God help me. Boom, baptism. This is what worship does. This is what corporate worship does. One of the things um, that, it, that it does. So when we sing our praises to God together, we can't help but set our mind on the things that are above. And where the desires of our hearts are getting a little, little out, out of bounds when we sing, we sing about God's greatness and we sing about the 10,000 reasons that our soul should bless him. Man, doesn't that just pull us right back where, where you should be? And this is what we do together. This should, this should uh, be very encouraging. So if you, if you don't sing, typically, start. The church, the, the church needs you. The church needs you to, to be encouraging. You can raise your hand, too. I know that's difficult for some people to raise their hand in public. That's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, that's a joke. Uh, that's right. Uh, and additionally, whenever we hear God's word, God's word preached, when we talk about his word in city groups, women's groups, DNA groups, men's group, all these things, we are doing what, what Paul says, teaching each other and admonishing each other in all wisdom. It helps us keep first things first. You know, there's one reason why we dedicate a significant amount of our time in service to preaching of God's word, to reading God's word, to discussing it, to contemplating it. It's a big thing that we do. But whenever we're in conversation with each other, man, if we can, if we can pepper in some, some, some of the word of God, that would be really, really nice. That would help us so much. You know, because we see each other throughout the week, hopefully, but if we only consider the word of God on Sunday mornings, if we, when we talk to each other, we don't, we don't mention Christ, we don't talk about his, his word and his truths and all these different blessings, these indicatives, and we don't, we don't share with someone a psalm that we read that just lifted us up, and that may be just the thing that that person needs on that day. When we refuse to do that, when we neglect to do that, the church of Christ, full of Christians, who are made new, who God has given a, a large responsibility to, when we don't do that, doesn't the, doesn't the church get a little a, a little weaker? Yeah. If it doesn't get weaker, at least it's not as good as it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Now, does this mean that everything we say, we should just like every conversation should just be going back and forth reciting scripture? You know, no, it shouldn't be like that. But there should definitely be this this idea of Christ is the biggest thing in your life. Christ is the biggest thing in my life. He wrote a book about himself, and it's wonderful and it's powerful. And so we we talk about it and we share each other. This is this is. The reality is one of the realities, one of the actions and attitudes of the Christian church. Without each other, God's word, with the reading God's word, consuming, meditating on God's word, singing about God's greatness and his preeminence, our minds and hearts, which are already prone to get way off course, are going to do that easier. We need each other, and we need to be focusing on these things. And lastly, uh, number three, uh, the purpose of, of the church. The realities of the church, attitudes and actions of the church, finally the purpose of the church. Go to Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, in World War II, 
uh, on an island of Iwo Jima, there was a, a there is a, a mountain uh, named Mount Suribachi, and there was a, a battle fought between American forces and Japanese forces, and, and uh, the, Jap the uh, American forces broke through and won this battle. And at, at the at the top of this mountain, do you know what they did? What they do? They planted a big flag. You guys have all, all seen that that picture, probably the most iconic photo of World War II of these six soldiers that are just putting this big flag up in the, and at the top of this, this mountain for everyone to see. Um, why did they do this? What's the point? What's the symbolism? What's, what's the, the meaning? The, I think what, what the meaning is, is they're, they're saying that this battle was fought and subsequently won in the name of America. I'm not going to make a political statement. Everyone just relax. Everyone just like tighten up for a second. Deep breath. Not, not, not going to get uh, not going to get political here. But the point was to say it was done in the name of of America. So in verse seventeen, Paul is urging that no matter what the Colossian church does, everything they say and everything they do, those things should be done in the name of Jesus. In other words, everything that happens should represent who Christ is what he has done, what he has called his church to. And that's the purpose of the church, to give glory to God, to mimic God, to make his fame and his name great in the world. And so we have this, this, this thing in our mind that we should keep in our minds that everything that happens, we are representatives of Christ. Whenever we go to work, boom, Jesus flag. I'm going to work like Jesus, like I'm doing this in Jesus' name. This is a way that I'm going to work that Jesus would be proud of. You know, I love that we have the, the this family feast afterwards. We're talking about the church family. We're going to eat together. I love that. So we're going to put a big Jesus flag on top of the ridge. Boom. This is something that, that Jesus would be proud of. My people getting together, loving on each other, eating together, talking about their lives and talking about me. Any time you're in a, a social setting, um, I don't care what it is, you're at the gym, you're playing sports somewhere, you're, you're uh, driving, having a conversation, boom, Jesus flag. Everything that I do... Jesus could look at and be like, well done. You're being a good representation of me in that way. This should be, this should be our, our life, what, what are, you know, our main goal in life. So I started talking this morning about where the name Christian came from. And in, in Greek, it means those of Christ or uh, those of the party of Christ. You know, and the city of Antioch somehow knew what this church was all about. Okay, they somehow knew. Why? Because they said these people are of Christ. Christ, a Christian means that they are a part of Christ. How did they know that? Obviously, these Christians were talking about Jesus. They were emphasizing Jesus. They were probably living in a way where these people saw and they were talking to them. Well, why do you guys treat so like that? Well, we love Jesus. We serve Jesus. Oh my goodness. They're doing something so revolutionary and they know this, this Christ guy. We're going to say that they are a part of Christ. Isn't this what we are about? This is what we should all be about. If you are an unbeliever in this, in this room right now, if you're kind of questioning this whole, this whole Christian Jesus thing, more than likely, some point in your life, you've been, you've been burned by the church. You've had some bad experiences. Whenever you think of Christian, the first word that comes to mind is hypocrite. Okay? Please know that if you are an unbeliever and you have these experiences, 
we fail. Christians fail at this more often than not, but Jesus doesn't fail. When we do not give forgiveness, Jesus gives forgiveness. When we don't love you the way we should, we don't love others the way we should, Jesus loves perfectly. So please don't correlate the negatives about Christians to Jesus, because that's not the way it is. That's not the reality. So, uh, new, new city, when we do life, when we do church together, do we do it in a way where we could set a big Jesus flag and boom, right in the center of this thing, and Jesus would say, yep, you're representing me, you're doing it well. That's what we should all be about, and it's when we do that, that a, that a city um, will, and our neighbors will look at us and say, wait a second, I know that that person's a Christian, they must be a part of Christ. One of the great, greatest things I think we get to do every Sunday um, is we get to take communion together. Um, I, I love, I love the, 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 the physical exercise of a brother in Christ breaking off the bread or a sister in Christ and dipping the bread and us eating that together, serving each other in this way. And in doing it now, we, we do this in a, in a way that we know that is because of what Christ did, because of his work on the cross that makes all this possible. Jesus doesn't die on the cross and sacrifice himself and forgive our sins still with the Spirit. Nobody's in this room. Nobody. Nobody has hope. Nobody loves anybody else. But because of what he did, we love each other. And we have so many benefits and blessings through it. So the way, the way we take communion, two lines right here in the center, break off a piece of bread, dip in the cup, and head back to your seats. Um, if you're a Christian, please come do that. If you're uh, an unbeliever, stay seated. Um, if If... You, if any of this that, that has been said is is kind of resonating with you, if you're feeling drawn to this whole Christian thing, if, if, you, if you want to know the love of Christ, if you want to be forgiven for your sins, and you feel like God is drawing you, please come talk to me. I would love to love to discuss this with you, um, and and uh, maybe if if you want to, we can hit communion for the first time together. So well, with that, let's let's pray. Now, Father, um, you're a good good God. Um, Jesus, thank you for this new reality that we have in you. Thank you that we are brand new, not because of anything that we did, but because of everything that you did. Lord, thank you that you call the people um, to not just sit in a room and, 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 and just read a lot and just to pray a lot, but you, you commanded us to come together and to love each other and to love each other well and to love each other like you love us. Father, we need your help with that. Father, and as we, as we take your take communion and we think about your sacrifice, Father, would you move in, in, in this room, Father, where, where repentance needs to take place, where forgiveness needs to take place, Father, when a, a, a new commitment to, you know, doing everything in your name needs to take place, Father, would you do that now? It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.